and welcome to IMI's Talking Leadership Podcast. I'm your host, Hugh, and today I'm joined by Simon Haslam to talk about decision making. With the coronavirus and subsequent economic turmoil, a lot of big, often life and business changing decisions have been made over the last few months and will be again for the foreseeable future. Simon is an international strategy consultant, a program lead for strategy at the Institute of Directors and visiting faculty at several business schools, including here at IMI. We're going to talk about the current situation, the right mindset leaders need to take when improving their decision making and how to bring decision making into their thinking when the world goes back to the new normal. So, Simon, how are you? Welcome. Hugh, uh, hi, I'm Grand. Thank you very much. All right, so big topic, but I'm going to start with actually probably the simplicity. Uh, it's actually been quite a good time for decision making, hasn't it? Like, as I said at the opening, many decisions will have been horrible, but they've been coming from a limited menu of options. That's very true. And I think in terms, certainly a very interesting time for decision making. Um, and I think what we've seen is that um, when the impact of uh, the coronavirus um, bit in so many countries and organizations, uh, the choice set became reduced. And the other thing that happened, the consequence of the choices became more apparent. Mm. Uh, and for, for me, it's the, um, if you like, the positive spin of an approach that many leaders have, have pragmatically taken which is this idea of kicking a can down the road. Mm. Uh, and quite often it can come across as quite a lame way of making decisions. Um, but for leaders who do this very well, two things that they absolutely get is when you kick the can down the road, uh, you socialize the data, you learn more, and you have pre-sold the inevitable. So by the time you make your decision, uh, you're almost faced with that limited choice, but people are on board with the consequence. Uh, so we've just seen the exaggeration of that happening. Mm. And, 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 and I suppose that's almost my next question. We've seen how the crisis can cut through a lot of, you know, the nonsense we usually see uh, when we're making decisions from internal apathy to internal politics. Any lessons we can apply to times that aren't a crisis? Absolutely. Uh, and um, just a wry smile as you were talking about that. And um, given the past few years have been relatively benevolent in a lot of the parts of the world, uh, a, a lot of my discussions with my boards and my clients, uh, there's been a lot of sweating the small stuff. Mm. Um, not rearranging the deck chairs, but probably an unwittingly large amount of time given to relatively minor things. Um, okay, we're early into the next normal. Yeah. Uh, but uh, none of my clients are now sweating the small stuff. The stuff they're talking about has great gravity. So I think there's almost uh, a cleansing of the way we are framing decision-making discussions uh, that will come out of this. A um, couple, couple of options for people there. Um, earlier on this week, I was working with one particular client and the hypothesis we ran was the hypothesis that half their income would disappear. Now, my client's income is relatively secure because of the business model they operate. But the hypothesis ran incredibly well as a discussion for one reason and one reason only. A lot of their supply chain, a lot of their partners, a lot of their network had seen their incomes hemorrhage. Mm. So the gravity of this type of thing happening was lost on nobody as a possibility. Uh, so when people see the reality of possibility, if that's not a contradiction, they treat these type of hypothesis exercises most seriously. 
Yeah, and, and 50% drop in revenue hasn't been that uncommon over the last uh, couple of months. It um, really hasn't, yeah. yeah. And now we're getting back into that more sort of complex phase. Um, do you think there's going to be a psychological impact of things? I, I don't know if slowing down again is the right word, but I suppose what I'm saying is some people will still be in that quick, decisive mode while others will want to take a step back. What's the impact within organizations there, do you think? I'm really hoping there's a lot of folk uh, taking a step back. Mm. There was some research published relatively recently on the varying fortunes of family-owned businesses in Europe. And what the researchers had done was to map the reactions on two axes. The degree the decision-making was short-term and the degree to the decision-making was towards the medium-longer-term. And whether the decision was... Um, innovative, spatial, creative, or whether the decision was purely reactive being forced into a corner. Mm. So if the COVID-19 thing has taken so many patients into ICU, uh, there comes a time when we are released from intensive care uh, and we're back on uh, a ward and then we're released back into society. So I'm hoping uh, that irrespective of what we've needed to do to keep the wheels on the enterprise in the short term, Uh, We're still mindful about, you know, the phrase, um, never waste a good crisis. Uh, We are thinking about where's our green landing strip? Uh, How do we change? How do we step back and thinking about, okay, let's take this opportunity to redesign, reconfigure the organization uh, so it has a more relevant future. And and what the research was saying, there is such a difference between how leaders are doing this, some really well, some really badly. And... To talk about those leaders, we're, we're, you're saying slow down, but it might not be immediately obvious to them that they can slow down at this point. So I suppose, is there any way leaders can get an outside look and say, hang on, you take you take Friday afternoon and have a step back? You know, what's that advice for almost spotting your own mistakes and your own uh, pace at the wrong speed? It's become more challenging in a virtual environment because um, we would be fully aware of the ability uh, in face-to-face situations to bounce ideas off uh, people relatively straightforwardly. Mm. Um, And with the disconnection of the virtual world uh, and the conspicuous uh, what sits on her shoulders or his shoulders as a leader, um, we could probably wager there wouldn't be a strong leader on the planet who hadn't got in her or his network a critical friend, a coach, a significant other who was Mm. acting as the foil of the sounding board. And the role of having that critical friend or coach has become far more important over the recent months. So where we don't have that uh, almost as part of the fabric of the organization, we need to take steps as leaders to go figure it and get our own solutions on that. It is a very lonely role, as we know. Uh, and the other thing is um, the phrase, and it's a Kim Scott phrase, and um, I'm, I'm borrowing it, always put your own oxygen mask on first, yeah. which means uh, as, as, as leaders, um, we're probably not where best placed to serve the organization and our teams if we're not on our A game. Mm. Uh, so we should be encouraging everybody in the organization to be as much on their A game as possible to look after themselves in order to look after the stakeholders in the organization. And the same applies to the leader. Uh, so having a significant other, having a coach, a sounding board of foil is so, so important. Uh, and being conscious of one's own condition and fitness for purpose in a very disconnected world is critical. And 
fatigue. It, it's been a big few weeks and months. Should those le- leaders, leaders, should those leaders that you're talking about start unburdening themselves, even temporarily? I, I read an article about a leader that you know made someone CEO of change projects, CEO of finance for a temporarily just so they could make decisions. Is there any advice like that that you would give? It's a, it's a wonderful thing to be able to be able to do if the organization has got the capacity to do it. Yeah, that's true. Um, so if, if, if I'm a large organization and I'm a corporate and I've got a talent pool I can dip into uh, and it gives people uh, experience and it enables people to breathe absolutely brilliantly. But when you look at the vast majority of organizations on the planet, uh, they are small to medium-sized enterprises and they tend not to have the bandwidth and the capacity to do things like that. Mm. So I suppose in an ideal world, what a great idea. Practically, uh, we need to think about um, whether we've got the utility um, uh, in our own structures to enable that to happen. Let, let me come at it from a different way then and, and come at it from the sort of SME angle. If you're a leader, should you be looking at, for example, the amount of people reporting into you at the moment and saying, how can I cut this down, if even temporarily? It's a really difficult thing to do, and it's sort of counter uh, trend, if you like, because mm-hmm. um, the prevailing thinking recently, uh, and you, you'll know this, is, is the move towards agility, which is yeah. organizations which are delayed, uh, which by implication is you end up with more reports rather than less. And especially in times of crises, the, the most important form of leadership is the leader to, to walk the talk. Mm. So to be as present, as engaged, as visible as possible. And it's really hard to do that if you begin disconnecting and sort of increasing the height of the pyramid rather than the other way around. So you've got this tension between, okay, um, what's on the leader's shoulders and the type of leadership that's probably most helpful to the time we're living in Mm. uh, and what we need to do in handling a crisis. That's interesting. Okay, so I think that the upshot there is the CEO just has to keep working hard. Um, before we move on from this, um, making an executive, making and executing decisions in a virtual environment, is there any difference in your eyes? Yeah, it's big difference. Uh, and um, again, I'm having a wry smile as you ask me the question. <laughs> Um, and you, you, you'll have experienced this as well. And in terms of when you see uh, what is happening now when we have virtual meetings compared to have face-to-face meetings, the organizations do it well, raise their game. And my experience of board meetings sort of post-March um, to this present time uh, has probably highlighted five things that distinguish uh, organizational decisions in a virtual environment done well. Mm. First is preparation. Uh, So the pre-reads grow out uh, and the pre-reads go out with very clear instructions, what we ask the directors to acquaint themselves with and why they need to do it. And it is fully expected now that the pre-reads are digested, the homework is done before the meeting. Um, The agenda is incredibly well structured Uh, And we know that when you work virtually, you have less time to enable the engagement. So we run sharper meetings. So rather than four hours, it's two hours. We punctuate. We have physical breaks every 20 minutes where we just take a minute just to stand up from the chairs, all that type of stuff. And with that, there is the idea of 
the 2020, and this is this is a, 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 an expression that several people are beginning to use, mm. that when you work virtually, expect things to take 20% longer than they would do normally. And that's to give everybody a voice uh, and expect you to have the bandwidth to cope with 20% less items on the agenda. So we've become far more prudent and we are far more cognizant of what we need to do to engage people. And the final thing to say about virtual meetings is the importance of what I would refer to as a producer. Now, I was um, in a meeting with a client yesterday evening UK time, um, and my client is based in a, another part of the world. And we had an hour for me to work with the leaders on this, with this particular client. Mm. And with that 60 minutes, it took 15 minutes to get the technology to work. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds bizarre, but it happened and it's fresh in my mind from last night's experience. Yeah. So what we see is organizations to do virtual really well have somebody managing the tech that can manage the tech. So you'd expect the chat box facility to be used. You'd expect polling to be used. You'd expect somebody to hang all that together without the chair needing to try and do that with their left or right hand, as well as trying to read the virtual room. Um, so this idea of yeah preparation, the agenda, uh, you're going to spend 20 minutes longer on discussions. You're going to cope with 20 uh, 20% less of stuff. And boy, do you need the production of that thing to work well. And my clients who are doing that well are reaping the benefits. It's interesting, just as you talk through, I think we have experienced all those um, uh, moving digitally in IMI, particularly the producer. Um, we've, we've found having a producer online it has been really, really helpful um, in getting everyone on board. I love the 2020 rule as well. Um, I want to end on the current situation with uh, on bias, obviously a big part of decision making. And a lot of leaders will be making big decisions in little groups of people, totally understandably so. But this can obviously lead to decisions being made with a very narrow focus. Is there any way we can broaden the input into these act decisions in a practical way that still lends itself speed? Yeah, with um, the, the, the solution is an obvious one. Um, no magic to this one whatsoever, and it just requires work. Um, I chaired the board of an organization, uh, and earlier on today, I uh, had my check-in with my chief executive, and um, he said something, I won't give too much detail away, um, but what was coming from him uh, was a decision that he'd reconciled in his head, and to his mind, the organization had made. Now, He's one of four directors on the board. Uh, the organization, um, the decision was of a board level magnitude. So the point I'm making is this. Um, the autopilot is people will fly solo mm -hmm. because there's nobody in the room to check them. Yeah. So our duty as co-directors, as chairs of boards, as executives, is to reach out to others and to be proactive in connecting. So it takes a bit of work to make the call. It takes a bit of work to follow up on the email. Uh, so the solution is dead straightforward. But if we don't do that, people uh, like I was tending to experience this morning will have a tendency to make the decision in the absence. Um, might be the right decision, might be the wrong decision, but that's not the point. All right, let's move on to sort of improving your decision making. Um, I want to start by trying to get the listener in the right mindset. Is improving your decision making something you develop in and of its own right? 
through things like mindfulness techniques? Or is improving your decision making really about using tools? And when it comes right down to it, paying more conscious attention to your decisions? You just talked about the single person on autopilot. What is that right mindset or is it both? Yeah, um, grand question. Now, comment on mindfulness, and this is a personal opinion, um, uh, which is this. Mindfulness can help a lot of people, and I hope we all have our own recipe uh, for becoming more mindful. Um, and there's no sort of uh, blanket approach to this. Um, but it's very difficult to impose mindfulness on an individual. In my experience, those people who embrace it derive great benefit because they uh, are fully committed to investing in this working. Mm. And it's really hard to parachute that on somebody. So mindfulness works brilliantly for some people if they want to become more mindful. So they become more reflective, uh, aware of themselves in the moment, sensitive, empathetic, connected. Um, but um, I was listening to one of your earlier podcasts that, uh, this year with uh, Kriti Jane, who you and I both know well. And let me just endorse Kriti's um, comment on this one. There are techniques which improve decision making. These techniques are evidenced by research. And I think the one that she shared, and let me just endorse this, the role of a checklist. Yeah. Um, so can mindfulness take you to a good place? It absolutely can. If you want to let mindfulness take you to a better place. In parallel with that, there are techniques that help people make decisions better. Uh, and the checklist approach has been demonstrated in so many contexts, uh, be that piloting a plane, uh, be that in medical procedures, uh, be that in strategic decision making and investments. Um, so the answer is mindfulness can work. Checklists and techniques like that absolutely do work. Funnily enough, just here speaking, I think the checklist is my mindfulness technique. So maybe I've, I've crossed the sure. barriers. Um, those tools and techniques you just uh, mentioned the checklist is there anything else if you had 30 seconds to improve someone's decision making like what would you tell them to do would it be the, the checklist yeah um i can i can i can give them the guidance in 30 seconds um but it's going to take me a little bit more to tell you why i'm giving them the guidance <laughs> okay um in that situation if you were if it was a client or a colleague uh, this is what i'd say to them the first thing to do is when you're making a decision, ask yourself what's called the successor question. And the successor question is this, in five years time, I will not be in this role. Um, the reason is because our careers grow and develop, we've gone on to better and greater things. Uh, and that's wholesome and it's good and it's great for us. And sitting in our chair will be our successor. The successor question is this, in five years time, what would my successor wish I had decided today about this matter? Mm. So that's the first piece of advice. Now, the reason this is an important question is as follows. Too often in decision-making, uh, we have the blinkers of the here and now and the challenges of personality and emotion coming straight at us. It can be very hard for leaders to become what's called objective. And when we're trying to move organizations forward, it can be very challenging uh, to have the here and now surrounding us, as well as keeping sight on that point on the horizon, the purpose of the organization, the vision. 
So the successor question legitimizes somebody being future focused and it leg legitimizes their ability to disconnect from the personalities uh, around that particular space. So it's a really powerful way of improving decision making. So it, it, it kind of, in a way, removes biases and also just invites a diversity of opinions into your own it, thinking. It, it opens up the possibility for absolutely doing that. Yeah. Um, the other one, and, I, and so if I could explain the successor question quickly without the rationale behind it. Yeah, absolutely. The other one, is, the, the other one to do is what's called a pre-mortem. Now, this is language from a psychologist called Gary Klein. And what Klein says, okay, you make your decision and then you play forward. And whatever your decision-making group is, whether it's you individually or whether it's your leadership team of five people, once you call the decision, uh, you say, right, it's 12 months' time and what we have decided, the wheels have fallen off, it's come off the rails, says he mixing his metaphors. <laughs> and you ask yourself, okay, why did it go pear-shaped? And the reason the pre-mortem is such a powerful question relates to the use of agents in decision-making. So here's the explanation. If I go into a supermarket uh, and I make a choice um, and I'm choosing what I'm going to have for dinner and I say, is it going to be rice? Is it going to be pasta? Mm. I am making a decision, but I have no control over the quality of the outcome because the rice grower the pasta producer, the supply chain and the supermarket has controlled all that before me. Mm -hmm. So I have choice, but I have no impact on the quality of the outcome. In leadership, in organizations, the converse is true. Because when you do decisions in organizations, you have tremendous utility and agency over the outcome. Mm -hmm. So what to do? is to, once you've made that decision, to sense check it and stress check it, just to make sure you've played through all the things that could have conspired for it to fail and you are able to fix them. So it's like being able to grow and go and grow better rice. Uh, it's like being able to package it better. You can make differences. And the, that, the language of leadership uh, sort of plays to that. We talk about leaders with skin in the game. We talk about leaders leaning in. We mm. talk about people buying in. We talk about commitment. So the pre-mortem question is so, so important because we are really testing people's appetite to follow up and see it through. So in summary, in 30 seconds, I would offer people the successor question and the pre-mortem idea. It's interesting. I, I, I'm going to have to come back to you on those two, I think. Um, how, how do they look like? You know, um, it's for the pre-mortem, is that a, a group chat that is very specifically on this or is that something you do as an individual? Depending what the, uh, the, the decision-making unit is. If it is, if it, it is you as a sole trader or an independent executive making the call, you play it through yourself. Yeah. You could use your coach or a significant other uh, and they can be incredibly good in a situation because you give them a scenario to help you with. Yeah. Or with a leadership team, uh, you've made the decision and then you wind it forward to 12 months and say, right, okay, that's what we intend to do. Let's say 12 months time, it hasn't worked. Let's unpick why it hasn't worked. And then you can put in place the mitigants. So it's a straightforward conversation, be that individually 
with a significant other or with a group. Perfect. Let's, let's get a really uh, quick one in here. Um, decision fatigue, because uh, it's always stuck in my mind. Firstly, is it true that you'll generally make your best uh, decisions, particularly strategic type ones, in the morning? Yes, and it depends. As a generalization, <laughs> it is true. Um, but the challenge on generalizations, it is that they are generalizations. Yeah. Uh, and you will have worked, and I've certainly worked with people who tend to come alive in the wee small hours and their best work is done at that time. Mm. Um, so it would be imprudent for leaders to impose, but as a generalization, um, it is generally true. So it would be a, a decent general idea to hold those strategic meetings towards the morning. Yeah, and I think in terms of when we are working with group and we have to think about the uh, um, the denominator across the group you're working with, uh, I really expect um, if I'm working doing um, virtual facilitation or it's one of my own boards, um, the heavy lifting is done earlier in the session rather than later. Yeah. And um, I suppose this is this is old money. This is going back into the, the physical space. You've had experience of away days. By the time you get to four o'clock, everybody's knackered. Everybody just wants to go home and trying to get the uh, <laughs> trying to get the commitment to serious stuff at that time of the day is probably not worth too much effort. Yeah, perfect. And just finally on the improving your decision making, um, and this relates to decision fatigue. Um, Obama only having two suits to choose from uh, because he wanted to re reduce the amount of decisions he has to make. Is that something you would recommend? You do similar things, you know, do you have the same breakfast every day or do you go for the same lunch every day, that sort of thing? I'm sad to say I absolutely do. <laughs> uh, and um, I mean, I, I shan't bore you with the triviality of this. Yeah. Um, but there are so much that I try and routinize. Uh, and the reason that I'm trying to routinize it uh, is not to dumb down that aspect of my life. I mean, I really enjoy the breakfast we have in the house. Uh, I enjoy the clothes that I wear style-wise day after day if I'm not doing anything in front of a, a, a client. Uh, and I really enjoy my routine for recreation, which is incredibly repetitive. Um, but once I've got a routine, it gives me the freedom to have the energy and the ability to focus on things which are not routinized. Yeah. Uh, so I think lovely examples of that. Obama is a sensational one. Uh, I suspect a lot of us will do it. And, and, and the routine, I say, it's not about being boring. It's about just creating that space to give lots of attention mm. to more interesting and other stuff. Let's let's move on now um, to improving the decision making environment. Um, I think we'll all intuitively get that concept of noise, essentially things that distract us. First of all, what's the research around distractions and decision making? And I'd particularly like you to answer it in the context of those leaders that are currently reevaluating those open planned offices that people will be going back to at, at some point. Yeah. Um... Two comments. Um, I heard the word distraction uh, and I thought about the word stimulation mm. because a lot of folk uh, derive that spark from interaction with others. And the distraction for them uh, is not a distraction at all, um, but that we seed which goes somewhere. Uh, it, it is that 
sort of nudge towards creativity. So I think we've got to be quite careful uh, about sort of blanket solutions on that. Mm. Um, so one person's distraction is another person's stimulation. And the other challenge for leaders in this respect is um, a generational one. That when you look at the shape of workforces and uh, the strata within the workforce, uh, here am I as a baby boomer. Um, it would be imprudent of me to make too many decisions uh, without strong consultation uh, with people two eras away from me. Uh, so skipping Gen X's and going into the millennials and the Gen I's, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and so to be mindful of, okay, what am I des- who am I designing for here? And one thing I'm certain of, I'm not designing for me. Mm-hmm. And because we tend to we have positions of leadership through experience uh, and without serious ex- qualifications and seniority. Uh, there's an age dynamic uh, which doesn't flatter decision making uh, when it comes to thinking about the workforce. So, yeah, uh, there can be noise. One person's noise is another person's stimulation. And just because a leader has a particular view, doesn't that mean that view is held by uh, the way their colleagues, uh, the very people who are delivering value for the organization, view the same thing? And just as you were talking through there, should we be starting thinking about different types of workspaces? Now, obviously, you go into a lot of modern offices and they'll have a quiet office or a quiet space or any of those sort of things. But should we be starting designing offices to cater for those individuals? Because... Obviously, it's it's very monolithic at the moment. Usually, you walk into an office and it's every desk is the same size and, and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Should we start really designing for people's personalities at this point? Well, I think in terms of um, the events of the early part of this year, um, no name on this one, but one of my clients is a, a FTSE 50 company. Um, and I was having a coaching conversation with a particular leader there um, it was last month. And um, the reflection was this, uh, that when the dust settles, uh, there certainly won't be a return uh, to the lovely open plan office that sits in the city of London um, that was home to their working practices as a headquarters. Uh, they will not be going back to the way things were. Um, so I think um, it, it, it is beyond the design of office. Uh, we're now thinking about the design of work. I'm, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not, just, sorry, sorry, just to cut across you there. Is that a, is, has coronavirus accelerated that thinking or has it brought that thinking about? I think it's done both, actually. I think in some dimensions there was an inevitability. Uh, you, you, you sit uh, in the prestigious seat of learning and I can imagine the pace with which so much of the IMI product is being digitized mm. has been brutal over the past two months. Uh, those seeds were there germinating anyway. Yeah. And I think COVID-19 has accelerated that. Um, but in terms of different styles of working, uh, to be able to work capably remotely, uh, the way that Zoom has captured hearts and minds of so many people, uh, and with that, the, uh, I guess, some of the humanness uh, that you, you have calls with your colleagues and you're looking at their kitchen or their dining room because very few people in this day and age have got the room which is genuinely the green room studio. Yeah, I don't so, have a bookcase behind me, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that type of stuff that goes on that we're increasingly tolerant of. So I think it is that side of things has, 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 has been catalyzed 
uh, by the past few months. A quick thing on the last few months, a big part of the environment right now is fear and uncertainty. In general, how does that affect decision making across an organization? Yeah, um, one, of our, one of our pals, Gertrude, I mean, her opinion of uh, leadership and decision making is um, the two things that get in the way is number one, as you say, there's a fear thing. Uh, and rather than uncertainty, uh, she tends to label it as this idea of the laziness that comes through through complacency. Uh, these two things, and if you bring in certainty, don't do great favours for the decision-making context. But I think one of the things that has helped is the gravity of the impact. Uh, there are so many people disadvantaged with the greatest degrees of seriousness. And I think one of the things is this is incredibly real. Mm. So if I'm feeling fearful, I'm feeling uncertain, uh, I'm seeing a lot of people a lot worse off than me, and I'm seeing that we are living through this and it is massive. Uh, so I think, yeah, it works both ways. And how can leaders down within organizations sort of do that themselves? You're talking about the sort of internal conversation you have. Is there anything leaders can do to give that psychological safety net to people to make, you know, independent on the move decisions? Yeah, I think there is. I think there are three things. Uh, number one, no false promises. Mm. Um, I know he falls in and out of favor or in and out of vogue, but uh, Jack Welsh, one of his mantras uh, as a leader was to go straight. Mm. Uh, and I think we, we value leaders who do go straight. Um, so we may need to think about the language and the timing, um, but I think leaders who promise false uh, are quickly found out. So that's the first thing. Number two, um, leaders, in, even in times of very desperate situations, leaders who are genuinely empathetic tend to be more effective. Uh, so if we can genuinely put our feet into the shoes of others. Now, I was listening to um, an actress on TV, I think yesterday morning, and she was up for some nomination talking about the character. Um, and she used a phrase, uh, and I, I wrote the phrase down, and I'm not sure whether the, the, the phrase will translate for everybody. Um, but the phrase she used was to soil the shoes of the character. So mm. it wasn't just that the fact yeah. she put her feet into them, her feet had gone into them and she had done serious miles in those shoes. Yeah. And that's what empathy is about. So can I genuinely connect with my team? And the third dimension is, is if you're going to create psychological safety, you put your team before yourself as the leader. Mm. Um, so who takes the biggest hit in the salary cut? the people at the top of the organization, no question. Mm. Who does the heavy lifting on the inconvenience shift? The leadership team, not the people below. Mm. Uh, organizations who don't do that uh, tend not to create psychological safe workforces. And this is so important. And if we're talking about having a green landing strip, you really do want to keep your team, despite the desperate situation, going with you. Uh, so psychological safety, essential. No false promises go straight. Genuine empathy and put the scene, the team above yourself. Perfect. Um, just a quick one. Taking incompetence and laziness out of the picture, what's the general attitude towards bad decisions that were made? I know it's easy to say use as a learning experience, but we're trying to improve our decisions for reasons to avoid making bad ones. So what's the best way a leader can, you know, be empathetic, but also improve the next time that decision is made? 
Yeah, I think f for me, there's a contrast in attention. Uh, and I think in terms of the learning experience is su such a useful phrase here. There is such a difference between lessons lived, as in I've experienced the lesson and a lesson learned. We all live the experience, um, but very few people then extrapolate that into the implications. Now, some of the language that we're very familiar with plays to us having the learning experience in a genuine basis and is tolerant of decisions made with best of intentions, which turn out to be incorrect. So we talk about failing fast and failing forward. And in that type of situation, you've got to have a culture uh, which acknowledges the best decision in the moment, uh, acknowledges the value of imperfect decisions. So rather than to polish it, I'm going with something which is my our collective best assumption, uh, and let's see where it takes us. And if you have organizations which exhibit blame cultures, uh, then this type of thing really doesn't work. Um, and we can think about so much stuff that appears on broadcast media where where something has happened and it hasn't played out as well in practice, there tends to be a really big appetite for playing back over the decision uh, to hang somebody up and string them up for mm. the decision that he or she has made. Um, and we understand the human appetite for doing it, and it really doesn't help us learn how to make better decisions. Mm. When we are looking for, um, yeah, who do we blame on this? Um, who do we chastise? Rather than, okay, yeah, let's, let's extrapolate. So the failing fast and failing forward, easy words, really hard to do with genuineness. Yeah. Um, let's finish with just a very general open question. Um, those leaders that have gone through the, as I said, the tumult of the last three, four months, and um, they're probably very tired and stressed at this point. What's your advice for them going forward? You know, that, that, that one piece of sit down, relax, let me tell you something. What would be your piece of advice for them? I'm going to take the word peace. And in that piece of advice, I'm going to make two comments yeah. uh, and I'll get them in the same sentence. Um, take time to smell the roses and it may sound like a trite phrase but what that means is okay consider yourself um what is it you need to do uh, to take your foot off the gas to become a little bit dis more disconnected uh, to stare out the window to appreciate something uh to do something uh, which rocks your own boats mm. so that personal distraction and reinvigoration and number two connect with somebody else um even the gravest of thing, you don't need to fly solo. Yeah. Um, so if I could force that into one sentence, which would be one piece of advice, that would be it. Uh, so personal mindfulness, um, distract, di distraction, and this connection with somebody else, um, there would be what I'd offer. A bit of psychological relief. Listen, Simon, thanks so much. That was fascinating. Again, we always fly through so much stuff so quickly, but I think we got lots of practical uh, advice out there for leaders. So thanks so much. Hugh, with pleasure. Great to speak with you. Uh, and look forward to, see, to, to, to seeing you properly, uh, hopefully in the not too distant. Take care now. <laughs> we'll shake elbows. Thanks very much, Simon. Talk soon. <laughs>